Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Nicole Kirby. I don't think the refugee campaign can afford to overlook the fact of genocide, the fact of dispossession and the fact of the original racism that this country started with. Anybody that comes here that's not white will experience the same, well, very similar oppression, you know, as we have experienced with these governments and this society, you know, for the past 227 years. Today, we're looking at the role of the border in movements around decolonisation and refugee rights. Earlier this month, Women on the Line helped facilitate a discussion on this theme at the Anarchist Book Fair in Melbourne. We invited along Mariki Onis from Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance and Lucy Honan from the Refugee Action Collective. Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, or WAR, is a group of Aboriginal activists committed to decolonisation and they've led the huge Melbourne rallies to stop the closure of Aboriginal communities this year. Refugee Action Collective, or RAC, is a grassroots collective that's attracted a broad spectrum of people campaigning on asylum seeker issues since 2000. Lucy and Mariki spoke about their respective campaigns and the space between them. I asked them about their overlapping struggles against the violence forcefully imposed by borders in the name of the nation-state. Here's an edited version of this discussion. When we're talking about decolonisation and refugee campaigns, how important it is to acknowledge Aboriginal sovereignty and struggles for self-determination as a starting point for broader campaigns, and if, if that is an important point. You um, my name is Mariki um, and I'm from the Gunnar Gunditjmara Nations, um, Burung Garawangal, Jigang Garawangal. So basically I think, you know, when, when, when talking about refugees and, and people coming here and, and talking about sovereignty, sovereignty is essentially just a tokenistic gesture if you don't come here and understand the laws and the civil society that w- was here before colonisation, and I think that's really important for anybody coming here. Um, but also, um, you know, I think that, yeah, I think that, that t- you know, s- when people talk about sovereignty movement or sovereignty, it, it is simply only tokenistic unless you understand exactly the experience of genocide but also um, how our society were, uh, ran beforehand. Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's very, very important and something that Refugee Action Collective um, tries to, to take very seriously. For example, different um, refugee demonstrations that we've had where we've had a welcome to country from somebody who has given a genuine welcome and the genuine welcome that Aboriginal... Uh, sorry, not Aboriginal people, refugees are not getting from this government or from, from any other force in this country, but they are given a genuine... Um, deep welcome um, from a traditional owner that is a very profound revelation about you know who who which politics can welcome which group of people can genuinely welcome um, here and likewise when we have um, refugees who give an acknowledgement of country at the beginning of a rally or at some at the beginning of their speech 
it's again a very poignant thing of I can acknowledge and I acknowledge that there is genocide here. I acknowledge the racism of this state. I acknowledge your struggle, um, you know, and and I am doing that while, you know, this racist government has been doing the exact opposite for the last 200 years. So, I mean, that that's that's the starting point of, of you know, of all all kind of public appearances of RAC, um, and it is very self-consciously um, an effort to make that connection. Not, not, and I and I think you're right that it often can be tokenistic. It can be very, you know, just a, just a gesture, um, and and I think it often does turn into that. But I, but I don't think the refugee campaign can afford to overlook the fact of genocide, the fact of dispossession, and the fact of the original racism that this country started with. Uh, and also want to you know make the point that you know anybody that comes here that's not white will experience the same well very similar oppression you know as we have experienced with these governments and this society you know for the past 227 years so that's a really important point to make too so I think that I you know and I'm a strong believer that both groups need to work together in strong solidarity in terms of survival and coping as well, and I think that we can rely on each other for that and resisting. Those things around, yeah, the shared experiences of racism as well, like when we're talking about these issues, we're talking about the freedom of people to move but also the freedom of people to stay. And so some of the parallels, I suppose, between um, refugee experiences and Aboriginal experiences is, you know, people being forced off their homelands, people being forced off the lands that is theirs, but also the constraint of movement of people across borders, so to seek asylum, you know, in in places and and the detainment of people within those places. So I wondered if you wanted to talk a bit about the parallels between the campaigns in, in those ways as well. And, and I guess, yeah. like, both campaigns challenge the border in a way, mm. you know, both the movement of refugees and asylum seekers and decolonisation movements challenge the border the border and the nation state. So it would be interesting to hear both of your thoughts on that and, you know, your thoughts around the border in that way. The current colonial border have no jurisdiction to make those laws and that's really important for people to understand. They have no jurisdiction to make those laws on this country and this land and to say who can't come in here and who can. Um... In terms of borders, we, we have borders here before the you know, state borders and before the, the national border. Um, they are our tribal borders. They were never used to oppress each other. And so we have been internally displaced in this country historically, and that is still happening today, right now. And the best example with that is the community closures. These, there is a refugee camp called Madagarup in Perth for Aboriginal people. There are people staying there in tents. There are Aboriginal refugees within this country too. So I think there are a lot of parallels within the struggles around um, being displaced um, internationally as well from where you are. And I think this government has a lot to do... It has a huge role in what's happening in the wars happening overseas for people to even come here. I think that they should... And as an Aboriginal woman who has a you know, a connection to my country, I can't imagine what it's like to be moved off your land and country and have to move internationally for your own survival. Um, but I think there are a lot of parallels in our, in our struggles in that, um, in the, from the you know, colonial governments. 
Um, and I was just looking this morning as well. I was reminded that in 2009, Richard Downs from Unbloodwatch actually contacted the UN and made a submission for refugee status for the Unbloodwatch community because they same thing under the Northern Territory intervention that community were displaced. They were no longer able to stay there. They were subject to the kind of um, the kind of force that. As Mariki says, our government is 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 putting on other people um, on the other side of the world, but that's that's happening right here. So, you know, I guess the, the the freedom of people to stay, the freedom of people to to leave, that's that's intimately connected. Um, I guess the point about challenging the border and um, challenging challenging Australian national sovereignty. You know, Tony Abbott makes it so easy to see that that's their project by calling you know, what they're doing, Operation Sovereign Borders. It's such an anxiety on their part that they've actually called the project of repelling people, they did before they called it Border Force. They called it Operation Sovereign Borders. You know, like, it's about asserting white Australian sovereignty over this land here, and that's that's the determined project. And it is, it is a serious anxiety on the part of, you know, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party to, to, to maintain you know, an ideological sense of control and a sense of nation, you know, despite the realities that that persist of... And the realities, you know, and we've known this, again, for 200 years, the, the persistent fact is the Australian nation tried to erase Aboriginal people, you know, this, this land here, Melbourne, you know, within five years decimated 40% of the population just like that. Um, and... That's still going, that process is still going in the Northern Territory, in Western Australia, here, on the block in Redfern and so on. That's, that's the continued process. But I think it's challenged by the fact that Aboriginal people still exist. Adam Good still points out, you know, the racism. Mariki still organises the mass rallies at the front of Flinders Street. You know, those sort of things just continually throw into question, well, whose sovereign borders, whose sovereign state, you know, is being run here? Um, and I think, you know, the fact of refugees continuing to arrive by boat, so-called unannounced, unauthorised maritime arrivals, like, they, they just project their anxiety right into that, you know, into that language. They are concerned, the, the ruling class is concerned about the arrival of, of boats and the, and the punctures that that makes into the narrative that this is a controlled, organised rational system that we've got going on here and it works and it's fine and don't worry about it. So, yeah, I, I think that boats and Aboriginal people and migrants in general really do question, you know, Australian nationalism in a way that is quite powerful and, you know, that happens whether or not we're right, resisting, whether or not we're fighting, but when we are fighting and we're fighting together, it's an even more assertive and an even more kind of um, challenging fact for them. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You've been hearing from Mariki Onis from Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance in conversation with Lucy Honan of the Refugee Action Collective and myself, Nicole Kirby. This conversation was recorded at the Anarchist Book Fair in Melbourne in August 2015. We were speaking about the parallels between their respective campaigns and their struggles against the violence imposed by the border and the nation-state. Yeah, I guess I also wanted to ask you about the, like, there's sort of parallels in languages and discourses around 
citizenship in both of these campaigns and in particular, you know, the term illegal as a citizen um, and there's parallels around, you know, deaths in custody and deaths in detention um, and it sort of seems like there's this, that language in a way makes it possible for the state to exercise these really punitive and violent kind of forces around a group that is othered, that's sort of deemed as like almost foreign or othered in, in this country. So I wondered if you wanted to both talk to that a little bit. Everywhere where we haven't been wiped out, Aboriginal people are, I feel, essentially illegal to be here. Um, we feel up... We, um, our children are overrepresented in out-of-home care um, and we are filling up the prisons quicker than nobody's business. I mean, 80% of um, the juvenile justice centres in New South Wales are filled with Aboriginal children. We only make up 3% of this population. Um, they, are, you know, and I, and I, and I think that's across the board that... Um, for most peoples, but for Aboriginal people, certainly it feels like it's illegal to just be Aboriginal and it's becoming more obvious and particularly with the case with Muramal, he didn't want to identify his um, white name and, and he was locked up for that, you know. Um, there are many examples of when we try and assert our sovereignty and do an act, you know, we have to get fishing licences to fish on lands that we have fished on for 40,000 years. Um, and if you don't, you are then fined. And if you don't pay that fine, it then you know you you can end up in prison. So essentially, it is illegal to be Aboriginal, and you are forced to assimilate to the Australian society every in every aspect of your life, from your hair to your most intimate parts of your life. They want you to be white Australian, and every aspect of yourself there are, you know is compromised by that. So it's. It's so ingrained to try and be an Australian person and be assimilated to be white. You are accepted in this Australian society if you if you are if you act white. If you want to be white Australian, then that's okay. But if you want to point out racism and if you want to act out of line, then you will you will pay for that essentially. Um, yeah, just yeah, I generally agree with that. I was gonna. Um, make the point about the, the Aboriginal man in um, Western Australia who was taken into immigration detention because, um, you know, <laughs> they just didn't believe he was Aboriginal, despite the fact that the um, local land council would vouch for the fact that he, you know, for who he was um, and his, you know, his identity. The, just the fact of him looking not white um, was enough for them to question to question him and throw him, throw him into um, immigration detention. Yeah, just on that one, I don't know if people in the audience would have heard of that case, but, yeah, that was a couple of months ago. Um, a guy in WA was sent to the Yonga Hill Immigration Detention Centre and the local land council in Perth had, um, yeah, agreed that he was Aboriginal, which is what he claimed to be, and Centrelink and the Immigration Department disputed that claim and said that he wasn't, and they did all sorts of facial recognition techniques and all this sort of thing to show, according to them, that he was... They were claiming that he was Fijian and not Aboriginal. So then he gets put in immigration detention and he's then also saying, you know, this is my land where 
where am I to go if even on my land I'm illegal and I'm locked up in immigration detention? Also, I think that facial recognition technique also kind of harks back to, like, an earlier era of, like, eugenics, you know, like, when they measured skulls and all this kind of stuff of this, like, way of scientifically categorising people, which, you know, there's been so much work to dispute the validity of that and to still see that 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 kind of thing operates is pretty horrific. So yeah, just to flesh out that example which you yeah, raised, no, which thanks. I think is thanks. in case people hadn't heard of it, which I think is a really powerful example. Women on the line. I was just going to pick up though on a, on a different point about the deaths in custody because you know the, the, um, the logic of making a person illegal does ultimately end in deaths in custody. It does end in brutality of the most extreme kind. When you have made, um, you know, the politics of the border such that, you know, you, you are not welcome, you cannot come here, and we will make it worse for you here than it is wherever you have been fleeing, then, you know, that is the logic of detention centres, hell holes, concentration camps, sexual abuse, and, in fact, two murders on offshore detention, you know, a death very recently at Yonge Hill under very, very suspicious circumstances. These things just keep happening, and it's not an aberration. It's not, you know, a, a, a blip in a really bad system. You know, Serco wasn't checking its inmates frequently enough or whatever it was. It's actually the logic of making people illegal. And the same is true, and we knew this from the, you know, the whole campaign around deaths in custody, the whole, you know, the whole situation of warehousing Aboriginal people and making that the only option for Aboriginal people is to, you know, (laughs) shove people into prisons and keep them there and then put them back in there and then keep them there for a long period of time. You're turning people into illegal, you know, you are illegalising people and the logic of that is death. It is killing them. Mm. Or killing the Aboriginal in them. Yeah. You know, and that they either have to... Um, commit to the wider society or, you know, die. So assimilate or die. That's the option. And I think that's the option that they want many people who finally get refugee status here and they get to come here. You know, they have to assimilate as well, which I think, you know, is really sick. They treat people terribly here from different cultures where the colonisers were the most murderous that's where they'll treat refugees the worst and I've seen that that pattern has happened. Often especially when we're talking about sovereignty or we're talking about um, colonialism it's talked about like it's a historical fact but actually we're talking about a contemporary thing that's continuing to happen Mm. and that kind of I mean we're talking before about the way in which there's this like push to have uh, obedient citizens and so if people contest you know, the racism of the state, then they're, like, there's cause for them to be deported. Like, and we saw mm. that with Ab- Adam Goods even just last week, you know, like <laughs> this football player saying that he should be deported. And so like, looking at that continuity as well around like, what is citizenship and like, that project of whiteness and creating mm. like, an increasingly white state. There's millions of dollars. It's, it's a huge industry. And mining companies, all different corporate plays across the board pump millions of dollars into Aboriginal children's programs to help them assimilate and achieve, um, to get good jobs, to have their say in Australian politics. It is the push to assimilate and remove yourself from your Aboriginality is at... It's 
it's horrific. You know, it's under the guise of reconciliation is if you kill the Aboriginal in yourself. That's what they want to reconcile on. In, and, recon, and they are... They are reconciliation council. Are just they are. Oh, I can't even. What is the what's the word? They they are funded by Woodside and BHB Billiton. They the original declaration for the reconciliation council had treaty in it. It doesn't have that anymore. They made no um, that consultation with Aboriginal people in this country around taking the clause of treaty out. They've replaced it with recognise for us to be recognised into the Australian constitution. We have to ask the Australian people for permission to be written into their constitution. So, I mean, that's what a treaty has been replaced with. I mean, our for us to become a part of the Australian society has never been... It was better under John Howard. Right now, there's no chance in hell for us. Nothing. On Community Radio Around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. This week, we're hearing from Lucy Honan of the Refugee Action Collective and Mariki Onis from Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. They were in conversation in Melbourne earlier this month, speaking about the parallels between their struggles that challenge the border, the nation-state and the violence used to uphold them. Last year, we, I mean, the Aboriginal Provisional Government um, have issued their own passports, um, and this, this is to, you know, in resistance to us not being Australian, and we, we're very, you know, steadfast on that. We, we are not Australian, and that's part of the problem. Of them, is them thinking that we are Australian and we, that we just want more welfare? But anyway, we came, we, you know, last year we went to Turtle Island and came back. And we used our um, Aboriginal passports, and if you don't have valid, um, by their ideas of valid documentation, you get sent back to where you came from. It comes up with a really interesting question, and they just don't know how to deal with it because they're confronted with this idea that when we're like, no, we're not Australian, we're Aboriginal. This is our documentation. They don't know what to do with it, and they just let us through. If they're going to send us back to where we came from, it'd be nice if they could, you know, pay for a cab back home. But, you know, like, they don't know what to do with it. Um, In 2012, there was a ceremony here in Melbourne where um, refugees were... It was, a, it was a citizenship ceremony, I suppose, where traditional owners gave refugees Aboriginal passports and I don't, I don't think that got them anywhere half as close to customs, but it was a really strong assertion of that politics of whose state, whose sovereignty, whose, whose right to issue, um, you know, these kind of documents and so on. But I guess talking about that and how those passports were used, I guess it's like a good point to also open up what does solidarity ideally look like between these two campaigns and that's something I'd be interested in hearing from you both on. Sure. Um, I I just think the possibilities are a little bit endless in in this regard. Um, Just last week, one of the the best kind of, you know, I stand with Adam Good's moments was when... um, a man on Manus wrote on his hand, I stand with Adam Goods, you know, that kind of... It, it just... I don't know how many different ways to put it. The poignancy or the, the depth of that kind of solidarity is really 
um, really profound because of what it reveals and because of how it kind of, it really does kind of um, draw the lines, I suppose, and say we are, we are, you know, relentlessly on the side of Aboriginal people. We are relentlessly on the side against racism. You know, the Australian state, you know, it's locking us up. It's put us, you know, in this hellhole. It's torturing us on a thousand different ways um, and, and we can see that our future is tied up with the people fighting the racism of that state. Um, so, you know, I guess that's, that's uh, you know, a, one, one, one very small kind of one man's gesture on Manus Island, but it, it meant a lot more and I think it, it points in the, the direction of a lot more. Um, Amanda, who's just over there, made sure that we had... Um, you know, a refugee contingent at all the um, all of the um, community closure rallies that were organised, or all of the, all of the ones from a certain point, um, just saying, you know, like we stand with the refugees who have been made refugees in this country, with the Aboriginal people who have been dispossessed very recently. Um, you know, those kind of acts of solidarity are are huge. And <laughs> sometimes people call me too optimistic about this particular thing, but. That's funny because I'm usually very pessimistic. But I, I do actually see huge, huge amounts of potential in mobilising people against racism in this country. And there are plenty of examples to show that when you are fighting racism of one kind, you know, like when you're fighting the racism of the Vietnam War, that is very, very quickly able to become also a fight about... Um, Aboriginal rights, a fight for land rights, when you're fighting against South African apartheid, you know, again, same thing. Pauline Hanson, you want to fight against the anti-Chinese racism, it's kind of impossible to do that unless you also fight against what she's saying about Aboriginal people. So, you know, the two, are, the two cannot be disentangled. Um, I think that, you know, with the two groups working together, we are already, I mean, war and rise um, have a relationship together. Um, and we certainly, you know, we do have, we have formed relationships with, you know, refugee groups from, all, you know, all around. But um, I think when we are in the rally and I see, you know, Palestinian mob there or, you know, you can see African people come and all different, all different kind walks of life come to our rallies and, and stand with us in solidarity or we've had... Indigenous peoples from all over the world come to our rallies and it's so heartening to see because our fights are so similar. Um, but I just think that it's really important for people to remember that you, you will be treated like Aboriginal people. They did that, they're doing that now with fracking and the farmers are freaking out because they feel like Aboriginal people, are fr- they feel like that right now. The, um, the basics card, that was tested on us. You know, what they do to us is what they'll do to you. And you need to, we need to stop it before it continues on to your backyard. And our freedom is certainly tied up with yours in that sense. So it's not separated in that. So those mining companies that are shutting down communities in WA, they're going to come here to Victoria and do the same. In fact, mining companies are sniffing around the mission that I grew up on in, in, in Gippsland fracking companies right now that's happening right now so that that will come to your doorstep so there's you know certainly a lot of yourself that will be tied up in that. and all these white farmers are freaking out and it's like you know it's the cognitive dissonance 
you know, to them and how freaked out they are at losing their land and their livelihood while they continue to make millions of dollars off the back of Aboriginal genocide is... It's almost laughable if it wasn't so serious. But, um, you know, I think that we'll always forever stand, you know... Aboriginal people, our freedoms are certainly tied up with the West Papuan mob, with Palestinians, with, you know, our brothers and sisters over in Turtle Island. We have a really strong bond with each other already. And, you know, with our African brothers and sisters, we will... Aboriginal people will take care of anyone that comes to our shores, you know, as long as you'll take care of us. That was Mariki Onis from Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. You've also been hearing from Lucy Honan of the Refugee Action Collective. This discussion was recorded at Melbourne's Anarchist Book Fair in August 2015. There were also a lot of important questions that were raised at the end of that discussion. The full, unedited version of the discussion is available via our website, www.3cr.org.au slash womenonthelion. On the website, you'll also find links to RAC, to war and to rise, as well as the book that Mariki mentioned, Decolonising Solidarity by Claire Land. That's all for Women on the Line today. I'm Nicole Kirby and this program was co-produced with Tuffy. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so please send an email to womenonthelion at hotmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website www.3cr.org.au slash womenonthelion. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I hope you can tune in again next time.